Hello there, Tampa Bay, and welcome to The Skinny on WMNF, where we only talk about the important stuff. I am... Uh, <laughs> and, and some non-important items, I suppose. <laughs> I'm Ben Montgomery, and I'm joined uh, in the studio by my friend and Creative Loafing's executive editor, Ray That's Roa, me. who's been very busy. This yeah, week. it's best of the base season, man. My life is... Uh, Terrible and amazing at the same time. We have a big party at the end of the month, and that'll be a nice release. It'll be good to see everybody. You know, uh, tell us something secret about what goes into Best of the Bay selections that we don't know. Uh, I think people would be amazed at how hard it is to get those votes, uh, especially like in a year, like with this year with the daily voting. You really do have to kind of run a campaign, and it's really impressive to see people year after year kind of work. And then some people, you know, who never get in the top three, they get in the top three one year. I've seen some this year who've who've won categories. So it's it's really cool to be in touch with people in the community every year. And I think that's like the real heart of it. Like you get to see all these people, and they work so hard, and they're so creative, and do so many cool things. And so it's really cool. I always joke that it, my life is terrible during Best of the Bay, but it's really the best time. Well, I know um, the, this, for the paper. Yeah, the the region looks forward to it. And, and when can we expect to see that issue? That issue will come out the last Wednesday um, in September. Uh, we have a party at the at the Hard Rock. So, um, but uh, you can see more information on cltampa.com. Uh, but yeah, it'll be pretty exciting online a little bit before that. So awesome! Yeah. Thanks for doing that. Our friend and co-host Mitch Perry is in Tallahassee this week monitoring the Florida Supreme Court as it hears arguments today in a case that could trigger one of the country's strictest and most far-reaching abortion bans. The case brought by Planned Parenthood and other Florida-based abortion providers centers on a provision in the Florida Constitution intended to protect the right to privacy, added by voters in 1980 and long interpreted by the courts as a safeguard against abortion restrictions. State Supreme Court has struck down several abortion restrictions over the past few decades, but has recently been reshaped, as many people know, by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis into what most many folks consider uh, to be one of the most conservative courts in the country. Stay tuned for more on that from Mitch uh, on the Florida Phoenix and uh, perhaps next week. Uh, First to the fertile fields of Florida for our first topic today, where some black farmers who hope to grow medical marijuana have been stuck in a kind of limbo. If you click back to 2017, as uh, as folks around here know, when more than 71% of Florida voters approved a constitutional amendment legalizing medical marijuana in Florida, the new law, of course, implemented uh, a measure that included a provision to make sure that black farmers got a slice of this lucrative pie. Twelve black farmers have applied for licenses to grow pot, and it took six years before any of them, uh, any black applicant with a farming resume got one. Two farmers and their teams received a license in July of this year. Now, very interestingly, most of those 12 applicants belong, uh, applications rather, belong to black, older black farmers. And some have died while waiting on approval. 84-year-old Morton Hopkins in Ocala died last year. 81-year-old Irkus Battle, a potato and soybean farmer, died in 2020. One of the former black farmers who has applied for a license, Leola T. Robinson of Scambia County, is 100 years old. And all of this has raised questions from people in the cannabis industry about whether the black farmers were merely recruited to serve as a face uh, on the license application. And we know some of this thanks to Shauna Muckle, who explored the issue for the Tampa Bay Times in a story published this week that you can find on tampabay.com or uh, in the paper, presumably in the coming edition. Shauna joins us uh, now via Zoom from Virginia, and we're glad to have her. Shauna, are you with us? 
I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Let's first talk about how lucrative these licenses can be. What are we talking about in terms of the value of them and, and uh, what is it worth? And, and also what does an application cost? This is not chump change that we're talking about. Not at all. Um, the, the medical marijuana industry in Florida, it's very cost prohibitive. It requires, you know, 146000 just to submit an application off the bat. So it's not for the small business owners. Um, and for the licenses themselves, it really varies based on, you know, how much infrastructure you have accompanying the license, how many dispensaries do you have, how many grow operations do you have. But some of my sources, you know, said at minimum $10 million can be up to 60 million. And a lot of that really depends on whether recreational marijuana becomes legal in Florida in 2024. And because that would expand the market. Yes, that would, I mean, right now, um, you know, there, there's kind of, I think a common wisdom that um, the the medical market in Florida has kind of capped out, you know, license uh, the people that are applying for medical marijuana cards is reducing each year so that's why a lot of the medical marijuana giants like truly obviously are supporting the recreational push and it would i i think um people people are sort of counting on that to revive the industry can you tell us about the plight of morton and algene hopkins yes so to give some context on sort of why only older black applicants are applying for these licenses and particularly older black applicants who don't have any experience with marijuana, which is one of the most litigious and regulation heavy, um, you know, industries in Florida. But um, so basically the state set up this program and, um, you know, talking to people like Nikki Freed, you know, former agriculture commissioner, they didn't necessarily set up this social equity program because there was this, you know, widespread belief that um, black farmers deserve a shot. It was more a way to avoid litigation because the requirements to operate a medical marijuana operation in Florida are so, um, you know, prohibitive for small businesses. You have to have 400,000 plants. You have to have been in business for at once 30 years, now five years. Um, but, what happened was the state kind of tried to, um, you know, find a group of people that were black farmers and experienced discrimination in the past. And they settled on this group of black farmers who had sued for discrimination. So what that meant is those farmers had to be farming in the 1970s and 1980s. And if you do the math, that means that the vast majority have been farming, you know, they're, they're in their 60s, they're in their 70s, they're in their 80s. Um, so and this is the, uh, the, 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 the Pigford case that we're talking about, right? Yes. Yeah. So th that was a class action lawsuit filed by black farmers alleging discrimination by the U.S. Department of Agriculture when it came to distributing loans and assistance. Mm hmm. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, already there were a small number of people that weren't already deceased that could apply for these licenses. And the ones that were, a lot of them were in the same case as Moton Hopkins. He died at 84. He, you know, started the application process for the license in 2017, 2018. So in his late 70s. Um, and what happened is it's the delay came not necessarily from when the state started soliciting applications, but they passed this law saying that a black farmer would get a license in 2017. It took five years before they said, okay, we have rules let's start accepting applications. So in the meantime, there were a lot of black farmers that were like Moton that were just, um, you know, sitting pretty and 
waiting for the chance to actually submit their application. Hmm. And Moten managed to, you know, survive until he could actually submit that application. But it's it's in those coming months when he was waiting on response that he died. Um, and from there, there's been a, a really kind of complicated legal battle um, with Moten's estate. So he has a widow named Algene, who's also 84 now, um, a son named Moten Jr., who lives in Texas. And they've, as well as a, a team, and including, you know, other Black, more established cannabis entrepreneurs in other states, and they've been really, you know, fighting this fight to get the, the license passed on to Moten's estate, to get it passed on to his team, and run into a lot of roadblocks um, and opposition from the Department of Health in the meantime. Is anyone working on uh, uh, relief for these folks? Um, uh, it, it seems there was some uh, uh, legislation passed last year, uh, represented by uh, St. Petersburg Democrat Daryl Roussan and Jacksonville Democrat Tracy Davis, that attempted to address the lingering issues around this, right? Exactly. So... Um, what happened when, so the state was originally only going to award one license to these 12 black farmers that applied. And as soon as they decided who to award that license to, and keep in mind that it would have gone to Moton Hopkins had he not died. He had, as the Department of Health said in a letter, the best application according to, you know, an impartial scoring process. But because he died, it instead went to a runner up named Terry Donald Gwynn. Um, and all of the other 11 applicants, Hopkins seems included, but also all the rest of them, they all filed their own petitions, you know, raising issues with how their applications were scored um, and basically just delaying getting that even that first license to Gwyn. So in the meantime, um, Dale Rousson wanted to, you know, in, in talking to me, he wanted to, you know, champion this cause of racial equity, get more black farmers involved. So he teamed up with Tracy Davis to basically allow all the farmers, not just one, to get a license. But obviously in these applications, a lot of them had issues and that's why they weren't chosen. So he set up, this went into effect July 1st of this year, but he set up this 90 day cure period that we're currently in so that these applicants could fix their applications and potentially um, to the exclusion of Moton Hopkins, who's kind of mired in, um, their team is kind of mired in their own legal battle, but potentially we kind of could be seeing 11 licenses for these black farmers. Where uh, where are we in the process now? So so when is the soonest that uh, uh, somebody could could be issued a license? Do we know that? So that's a good question. It really depends on how fast the Department of Health moves. Because if you think July first, ninety days from then, that's roughly you know end of September, start of October for when everyone has you know surpassed the deadline and hopefully had the opportunity to correct deficiencies. And from there, the Department of Health hasn't, as far as I understand, you know, said anything specific about when those licenses might be awarded. But it is notable that um, with, so right now, there are two licenses that have been distributed because there, once the law passed July 1st, 2023, there were two applicants, not just, you know, Terry Donald Gwynn, but also um, Shedrick McGriff, a Baskin-based farmer who they both had, you know, fairly clean, fairly air-free applications. And those got to those farmers pretty quickly. So one would think that, you know, if, um, if, if the farmers have, you know, corrected their applications and the Department of Health is satisfied, it, it could be a fairly rapid process, but we're not really sure of that yet. Hey, Shauna, it's Ray here. You mentioned um, 
Terry Donalguin and, and Shedrick McGriff. And in your story, you, you write that they're not affiliated with each other, but both are associated with some of the highest earning lobbyists in the state, Gwynn uh, by the firm Foley and Lardner and McGriff, um, Ponza, Maurer and, and Mayer. The firm retains Brian Ballard, you wrote, founder of lobbying and consulting from Ballard Partners and of counsel or affiliated attorney. And then you go on to say um, legal advisors uh, and representatives for McGriff's team and Gwynn's team received at least two phone calls, two email requests for comment in August. And then again, this month, early this month, um, neither of them responded. I know it's always frustrating uh, when you get to that point in writing a story and the reader obviously moves on as they're moving through the story. But I was curious, um, as a journalist, what goes through your mind when you try to get that comment and just get no response? And what in, in your mind, what does that say about how well-connected folks move through the halls of power? Yeah, that's a great question. And truthfully, you know, when I started working on this story, my, you know, my interest going in was just checking in with some of these black farmers who hadn't been accepted for a license and were still vying for one. And I found very quickly that it was really hard to get in touch with people. You know, these applications are listed publicly on the Office of Medical Marijuana Use website, but um, the points of contact are still tricky to get in touch with. Um, and I only ended up talking to, you know, about four of the applicants. And I, I'm, on, I'm grateful for that because, you know, they're in the middle of this drawn out legal process. But with the two of them, it um, it interested me because McGriff and, um, and Gwyn themselves have gone on records for other outlets before, um, you know, in in sort of the follow-up to getting awarded those licenses. And now it's just been, um, you know, radio silence. So I wasn't necessarily surprised, you know, by the fact that the teams weren't interested in commenting on the story or just didn't get back to me. Um, but it certainly has been, you know, kind of a hush-hush process um, for for just tackling this issue in general. You know, there's, there's still litigation going on. It's a hot-button issue. Um, so I think that explains why, um, you know, they held off on commenting. Are we able to see via these records uh, sort of the racial composition of the team submitting the applications? So if you look, yeah. So I I submitted a request to the OMMU to get the non-redacted versions, but the ones that are listed publicly, um, and, and those are really, you know, what's available to the public, to journalists, those, so they're heavily redacted once you get past kind of the contact information page, once you get past like the, the confirmation that these businesses exist. So the list of, you know, managing partners is usually blacked out. Um, I did see one of the, one of the org charts because it was sent to me by, by a source who was cooperative with the Moton Hopkins team. And they had, you know, about, about 20 black or people of color kind of in the upper echelons of the organization. But I can't speak to, you know, what these other organizations look like um, in terms of how diverse they are. Um, and I, you know, hearing, talking to some lawyers, like, you know, that are in, immersed in the cannabis industry, like Justin Robbins with Mr. Robinson with Mr. Cannabis Law, Zach Coburn with Ackerman, there definitely is a suspicion that these are, you know, primarily white driven operations funded by, you know, top lobbyists in the state because these licenses are just so lucrative. And that's the notion that let's just say a team of powerful people gets together and decides, all right, we want, we want to get in the marijuana, uh, in the medical marijuana game. Uh, what's the um, uh, most efficient entry point? Uh, let's find a, a, an older black farmer to sort of be the face of the, of the effort. Is, is that the idea? Is that the suspicion rather? 
So it really depends on who you ask. I think the more impartial sources like, you know, Jeff Sharkey, a Tallahassee cannabis lobbyist, his perspective is yes. It was a matter of once this law passed, finding out who these people even were, because understandably, if they're, you know, retired, then they are not necessarily waiting around in, you know, the halls of the Florida State Legislature, waiting to see if they can get a Florida medical marijuana license. Um, But interestingly, and, um, you know, I don't know how much weight you want to put in this, but for for Moten Hopkins' team, um, one of his managing partners, Eric Metz, he's based in Ohio, he was very insistent that Moten came to them and had this idea, um, you know, independently and, and assembled a team from there. Right. But the suspicion, I, I think, from people like Jeff Sharkey and others is that it was more so initiated by, um, you know, people in power in Tallahassee. And uh, Nikki Fried is invoked in your story, and you talked about her at, at the top in some of your comments, Shauna. Um, were you able to talk to her? And, and then also, in, in conjunction with that, um, did anyone that you talked to think that she could have done more for black farmers? Or what is it, was it a pretty cynical take? Like, I mean, she has that background in the marijuana lobby, too. So how did that play as you were talking to sources? Yeah, you know, it wasn't a question I necessarily asked about Freed in particular, but I, I did have a conversation with Freed. And one of the things I, I asked her about is, um, you know, in her time as agriculture commissioner, she obviously was really pivotal in the cannabis industry at large and ended up setting up the hemp industry, which is different from the medical marijuana industry and in that there are far few barriers to entry. Um, and as you can see, just playing out in our cities, there's a glut of, you know, smoke shops, um, you know, pseudo dispensaries that are selling hemp products like Delta 8 um, and potentially a more small business friendly environment. So I did ask her, you know, when you set up that program, did um, were you having a racial equity lens at all? And her response was, um, you know, basically I made it open enough and inclusive of small businesses enough that anyone could get involved um, and I, I don't think there are statistics out there about, you know, what the, um, you know, demographics look like in the hemp industry in Florida compared to the medical marijuana industry. But I think it's Freed's, you know, optimistic impression that there there's more room for black entrepreneurs. There's definitely some private sector programs that help direct black cannabis entrepreneurs to the more accessible hemp program. Um, but in, in terms of, you know, people remarking on whether she could have done more for racial equity. That wasn't necessarily something that came up in my conversations. We have a text here from a listener. They ask, could your guest talk about the vertical business integration model in place for medical cannabis in Florida? I think the vertical model makes it very difficult for new companies to enter the market. What are we talking about when we say vertical model? Yeah, that's exactly right. So um, when we say vertical model, what it means is that if you are a medical marijuana company in Florida, you have a responsibility to grow, process, distribute, market, sell, basically just all the features of business you can think of. You have to be doing all of that as your company. You cannot be hiring middlemen. You can't be hiring contractors. And because of that, you have to have millions of worth of capital on your hands, um, you know, to, to both be operating, you know, dozens of dispensaries to be operating grow operations. It's not just that you can be doing one small part of the supply chain in most circumstances. It's that you have to be doing every single part of it. And the reason the state set that up, the common wisdom goes, is that, you know, it was a Republican dominated legislature, you know, according to um, Zach Coburn, a cannabis lawyer, the idea was, um, you know, make it more, 
make it so that these companies can be tracked, they can be held accountable by the state. But what's really resulted from it is just, um, you know, it's incredibly cost prohibitive and run by, you know, fairly well-oiled corporations. What is the cost of entry? I, I mean, what's the basement here? Um, I can't imagine what it might take to not only have a field in which you grow and cultivate a product, but also the chain of distribution, the uh, you know brick and mortar uh, stores required to get it out there. I mean, we're talking about millions and millions of dollars. We absolutely are. Right? Beyond I think the reach of, of like course. a of a uh, you know a soybean farmer. Yes, uh, it certainly is, you know, something that takes at minimum millions, and that's just to get an operation off the ground. It, it takes, you know, venture capital levels of investment. Yeah. Um, and because of that, it, it's not a place, and already, you know, there's there's very few black farmers in Florida and very few small farms in Florida. And, and because of that, um, you know, it's, it's not a place, it's definitely not the industry to revive small farming in Florida or the country writ large. You're listening uh, to WMNF, to The Skinny. I'm Ben Montgomery with Ray Roa here in the studio. And we're talking to Shauna Muckle for a few more minutes. She's written a fascinating story about uh, the plight of some black farmers who are trying to uh, get into the medical marijuana trade in Florida. I'm uh, curious. We have a few more minutes here with you, Sean. I'm sorry to cut you off uh, there, Ben. What's what's next for you here? Obviously, we're checking in from you. You're, you're, in, you're in another state. What's next for you at the Times? And just thinking, what's the appetite for that uh, outlet? Maybe pursuing some litigation to see some unredacted versions of these documents. What are your conversations like uh, with your editors and in the newsroom? And what's next in this story for you? Are you going to continue to follow it, hopefully? Yeah, absolutely. So for context, I was with the Times for this summer and... Um, my, I, I was, you know, interning with the Times, so my time there is over for now, but um, certainly, you know, I'd, I'd like to come back. And um, with that, you know, I think I certainly heard some pessimism, pessimism from some of my sources about ever finding those, you know, unredacted versions, partially because they include trade secrets and things that, you know, the, the health department and the Office of Medical Marijuana Use could cite as things that can't be revealed to reporters. But certainly I would like to keep, you know, fighting for those unredacted applications, especially because it's so rare that, you know, reporters have access to these applications. The the other, you know, regular medical marijuana licenses operated by, say, TrueLeave, they're, the applications for those are not online. So, you know, finding more, finding more information from the health department is certainly, um, you know, it, it takes a bit of work, but hoping to keep pushing there. Do you know why they're refusing to uh, provide those names under what under what part of Chapter One Nineteen? Do Do we know? I I'm not sure honestly. I I think yeah that that's that's a good question and certainly you know something to keep following up on and then mm-hmm. see you know what their excuse is. I honestly didn't even receive a response when requesting these unredacted files. Gotcha, Shauna. Thanks for following this and thanks for joining us on the Skinny on WMNF. We really appreciate it and good luck out there. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Thanks, Shauna. And uh, we're going to move from the fields and, and weed into the woods here. Um, I think both of our guests are, um, or, or at least one, Nicole's going to be coming in here. Um, we're joined by Dr. Jeannie Munger um, right now. And um, in my mind, April 2021 feels like a lifetime ago. Um, but that year, I have these vivid images in my head of of Jeannie on the side of Fletcher Avenue here in Tampa with a megaphone in hand, um, demanding that the University of South Florida cancel 
its request for information about developing uh, the school's forest preserve, which is um, more or less a gingerbread man-shaped, roughly 500-acre patchwork of wetland and uh, sandhill habitat. It's on the northeastern side of the school's Tampa campus, um, adjacent abutting the uh, USF Claw um, golf course. Activists they put forth an aggressive campaign. Uh, there was a documentary released as part of it, change.org petitions. Um, eventually, that RFI was canceled. And um, he said it was to preserve his health, but then USF President Steve uh, Corral resigned shortly um, after that. Um, Jeannie, you are a plant biologist and field application scientist, and you now live in Seattle, but you're still helping um, locally as part of the Friends of uh, University Natural Area Groups. And uh, recently you, uh, myself and Nicole, had a chat uh, earlier this week. And I think emotionally, I think uh, everybody feels a little bit different about the prospects for the preserve these days. Is that accurate? Yes, uh, absolutely. I think, um, you know, we were successful in preventing that particular round of development from, you know, proceeding. But then also out of that was uh, the creation of this ECORE director position. And that's where uh, Nicole Brand is now. She's the ECORE director at USF. And it brought together not just the Forest Preserve, but also the Botanical Garden and the Geopark under one umbrella of management uh, and stewardship. So I think there were several things that took place that I'm really encouraged by. I think that Nicole has done a really beautiful job in the year that she has been in that role. And so beyond just protecting the preserve, there's also a new legacy starting um, of land management. So, and I, I hope that she'll be here any minute um, to talk about that because she's been on the ground for the last year uh, pursuing those management activities. Yeah, I have this uh, romantic ideal of Nicole and her job just like being out in the woods um, all the time, walking the preserve, checking the uh, the burn lines and stuff like that. And, and you mentioned ECOR. Uh, it stands for uh, Environmental and Converse, Con- Conservation Outreach Research and Education. Um, and as you mentioned, it, it brings in the Botanical Gardens, the preserve, and, and the Geopark. And as we wait for uh, Nicole to come on uh, here, Jeannie, I was wondering, the preserve, um, it acts as this corridor uh, between what is essentially two islands of animal habitat. And so it's essential in helping those animals kind of move around um, to eat, uh, to mate and reproduce. But can you also talk about uh, the preserve's role in human lives, like as a, fl- a floodplain and beyond that? Sure, yes. I think um, probably the most immediate uh you know, benefit that it provides to the people in the surrounding community is that it is by and large a floodplain. So there's a about 64 acres of sand hill, but predominantly the preserve is a wetland um, or a periodic wetland. So all of that water that is, you know, rushing off of what are now impermeable surfaces like concrete roads and pavement, parking lots, that's all flushing into Cypress Creek, which runs right through the preserve and then into the Hillsborough River. Um, So that's also where Tampa gets its water from. And that floodplain, in addition to holding water, also serves to filter that water, which, as you can imagine, in a highly urbanized environment, there are a lot of pollutants coming off of roadways, coming out of buildings, that sort of thing. So all of that mud back there is serving as a sink 
and a, a filtration for some of those pollutants. Um, and then in addition to that, there's a really important concept of, you know, a tree canopy in urban environments. There have been several studies that have looked at human health benefits to having tree cover nearby, um, you know, not just air quality improvement, but um, just having trees available in your vicinity. It lowers the, the heat level and also just provides people with a, a better sense of well-being. <laughs> And I think Nicole has joined us, Dr. Brand. Um, as uh, Jeannie was mentioning, uh, after six years at the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation, you are now about the year-old director of uh, the ECOR system. And I wanted to ask you some specifics about that uh, job soon. But the preserve is, is also home to a variety of plants and animals. Uh, many of them are endangered, threatened species. I think uh, there are four plant species in that preserve that are only found in Hillsborough County. Um, but for anyone who drives by that stretch of Fletcher and maybe uninitiated, can you talk about the aesthetics of what it's like in the, inside the preserve? Sure. And it's just Nicole, uh, no doctor. Um, I always go yes. with the doctor at first, you know, <laughs> bad respect. I appreciate it, uh, but not earned. Uh, so the, the Forest Preserve is north of Fletcher and it's about 500 acres. And within that 500 acres, most of it is wetland. Uh, there is a little under um, 100 acres of what is Sandhill habitat, which is a fire dependent habitat uh, in Florida. There are several plants, including, um, you know, there's a sand pine whose mature seeds, the seeds do mature in the cone, but then fire is required and heat is required for them to release. Uh, so there are plants that are actually dependent on that prescribed fire, um, which is a considerably more effective way of interacting with fire as humans, the alternative being if it just happens to light on fire from a lightning strike, because Florida has a very clear uh, lightning season, if you will, in the late spring and early summer. But yes, yeah, so that property has the sand hill, which we are actually gearing up towards uh, having regular prescribed burns on it, specifically for those species that are fire dependent. Um, so my colleague sitting next to me here, uh, Ben Montgomery, the guy loves to walk. Um, he mm. walks all the time. He's walked the Appalachian Trail. How many times, Ben? Oh, parts of it. Yeah, okay. never the whole thing. He's walked a lot. Can you kind of, since you do spend time in there and you bring students in there, and then we're going to talk about the Swamp Stomp a little bit later, can you talk about like what it's just like as a human? I think Jeannie kind of alluded, alluded to some of this. What it's like as a human to just walk through that piece of, of geography uh, of, of land here. That's really a, an oasis actually in this urban area that we have. Sure, I think my, my favorite memory so far in the preserve within the first few weeks that I was um, here, so it must have been in September, the weather was starting to cool down a bit and I walked north in the property along that sand hill ridge. And as I was walking north, I could hear the sounds of cars fade away. It was faint in the background, but just fade away and had a bit of a, a nature bath for the first time, you know, in this urban space where you can't hear cars around you. And then as you continue, there's a little offshoot of a path uh, to the to the west that I like to call sundew lane because at the right time of year, it's covered in carnivorous plants called sundews. You walk along that trail and you come to um, some xeric wooded area and continue and you start to see cypress knees. And as you walk past the cypress knees, you come to uh, this 
this beautiful um, transitional zone and ecotone where you've entered the wetland. And if it's a dry period of time, then you can walk a little further. But when it's the wet season, you can get as as long uh, as low face deep in the water. It's it's. I think it's good fun. Not everybody's kind of fun. <laughs> I know. I know. Ben's chomping at the, at the bit to potentially walk that. Yeah. Uh, well, you, Nicole. I know you have a um, you you have a history of uh, getting kids involved in this sort of uh, conservation work. Am I right about that? Absolutely. Yes. The Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation, where I previously worked, we engaged with kids quite a bit. Um, how important is that to preservation efforts like this? I know the students at USF, uh, you know, held protests and collected petitions and really done a lot to try to protect this green space. So really the USF community was the catalyst for that protection. Uh, really the work that Jeannie did, um, what I particularly find interesting is I, I learned of the film that she was in, Choke Point, um, just from hearing news on WMNF around the effort, Save the Forest Preserve. And uh, that video mimics the same story arc that Florida Wildlife Corridor Expedition films do. Uh, and so it felt, felt like a natural transition uh, to, come, to come work for USF and protect that space. But uh, that space is predominantly used for research and classes, uh, but it's also an opportunity for students to get out into the forest and we work with the surrounding community as well. Um, you know, there's a there's a good deal of community engagement, not just within the forest preserve itself around, um, you know, educating the staff and students on prescribed fire, but there are other properties that, uh, that are actually a part of the system that I oversee, the assets that are botanical and environmental conservation for the College of Arts and Sciences. Uh, so we also have the USF Botanical Garden that has a tremendous amount of um, education that specifically teaches about Florida native plant communities and links it to the forest preserve so you can feel endeared to that space without necessarily going. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe a trail hike isn't your thing, but you might want to look at some beautiful Florida native plant communities within the botanical gardens. And we regularly have uh, surrounding classes from K through 12 schools come and tour that space. And that's another way for them to learn about the forest preserve and the plant and animal communities that exist in there. You mentioned the, your work with the Florida Wildlife Corridor. Can you tell us what that is? Remind our listeners what that is. And, and is there any crossover uh, with this piece of property that we're talking about? Has this sort of been identified as potentially part of the corridor? So the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation aims to protect the, the Florida Wildlife Corridor, which is a statewide large landscape scale conservation effort that um, actually remarkably had bipartisan support and passed in its recognition uh, a few years ago in the, at the state level. And actually, if you trace up, so where, where the USF Forest Preserve sits, um, if you trace up the Hillsborough River, you come to the Green Swamp. Now, the Green Swamp has four rivers that run through it and um, provide aquifer recharge in that area for the Green Swamp, and that actually provides the majority of drinking water for the state of Florida. The Peace, the, the Withalacoochee? Hillsborough, Hillsborough, the green. Yes, yeah, uh, maybe the green. I can't remember. <laughs> That's um, my best guess. <laughs> yeah. And so the Hillsborough River, of course, uh, which also uh, draws from the green swamp, provides the majority of drinking water for the entire Tampa Bay area. 
And so in that way, it is connected to the corridor uh, via the Hillsborough River and the riparian zones all the way up to the Green Swamp, which is uh, both protected and a part of the Florida Wildlife Corridor. So you're listening to the voice of Nicole Brand for the past, the year old director of the uh, Environmental and Conservation Outreach Research and Education or ECOR system uh, at the University of South Florida. I know that prescribed fire is part of uh, your long-term plan for the preserve and I want to get into that. And, uh, you know, when we talked earlier this week, we talked about how notable it was that your position um, exists. But outside of that long-term prescribed fire vision, what is your day-to-day? What is this job asking you? to do, Nicole? So outside of the, um, yeah, outside of prescribed fire, we do work to, uh, I'm working with the Florida Forest Service right now to put together a 20-year land management plan, uh, looking to the future around everything from structurally, how do we interact with the public, what uh, what pieces of access, um, down to, you know, how much access does it have? Does it require a boardwalk? What kind of maintenance it needs? Um, But more interestingly, it also documents the history of that space, which helps to inform us of what we'll use moving forward. And because we're at the university, we have access to, you know, cutting edge resources for um, for tracking and monitoring our land. So I'm actually working with uh, Dr. Laura Harrison in the Access 3D Lab, and she has some terrestrial LIDAR. And what we've been doing is we have been scanning the forest one acre at a time. Um, to produce a more detailed mapping so we can see structural changes in the canopy, um, you know, foliage and leaf litter changes. And so that kind of cutting edge technology is uh, kind of a new resource utilized for um, land land management practices, actually. And um and I've forgotten the question. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I mean, that's kind of what we're asking. Like, what is what is the job asking you to do day to day? Who you're interacting with? Um, you uh, kind of- I get excited anytime I hear LIDAR. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was so much fun. We actually got to play around with it. Um, I don't know why we chose August for the, for the practice, but um, it was a sweaty half a day where we got to uh, produce the scans in um, one particular burn unit that we did. We did a practice burn unit in June, which is about nine acres, quite successful. You could clearly see the gopher tortoise aprons that were nice and cleaned out afterwards. And that's how we knew that they were still there and they were um, worth saving. They were, they were, it's a population that I think has the potential to recover. Uh, and just to speak to some of the things that this role does require day to day, it's Uh, There's never been a person in a position whose job was to think of that stewardship for the for the assets that I oversee for the College of Arts and Sciences. And because of that, it was, you know, well-meaning people who kind of had roles tacked on to their existing research or teaching. And so this position was approved by the Board of Governors. uh, So now it can exist in any um, Florida University system school. And I think the most fun part of the role is that it's highly collaborative. So really it's, it's you know, the world is my oyster in how we move forward in protecting these spaces and who we collaborate and how, how, we, um, how we acknowledge that land. Uh, and it means that I get to talk with, you know, different departments across the college and, you know, other departments in other colleges. So my connection to Dr. Harrison is actually possible because of this role uh, to bring her in from her um, from access 3d lab to see you know how can you get involved what kind of technology do we have 
um, in order to make this happen and, and better protect this land and, and monitor it. So that's, I think, been a ton of fun. I'm also working with the Urban Food Sovereignty Group uh, with Dr. William Schonbacher. And uh, part of food sovereignty is also uh, examining you know, land stewardship. And so we've been able to think through some really cool programming uh, because of that connection. So that's one of my favorite uh, pieces as well, because my master's is in food systems and it's an area, it's a muscle that um, I didn't get to flex as much as I wanted to in the environmental conservation world. And so I feel I'm, I'm the luckiest gal alive now because I get to dabble there too again. In what ways, I'm, I'm sorry, Ray, um, by the way, you're listening to uh, The Skinny on WMNF. We're talking about the USF floor, uh, Forest Preserve. Uh, if you want to join the conversation, call us at 813-239-9663, 813-239-9663, or send an email to dj at wmnf.org. I was going to ask him, what ways can I, uh, just a dude in Seminole Heights, um, engage with the with the uh, forest preserve. Can I just uh, sort of park my car on the edge and walk in and be in nature? How, how do we, what, what do we do there? Well, so not quite at the moment. Um, it's, we're having, we have a lot of heavy machinery in there when we're mapping out and carving out fire lines. Uh, but it's certainly, um, it's certainly a goal for the future and thinking through public engagement. But I think the easiest way is actually to visit the USF Botanical Gardens, come see what those Florida native plant communities look like. There's a beautiful collection that we have that Dr. Craig Hegel, um, who oversees the day-to-day -day operations at the Botanical Gardens, um, he has instituted a beautiful collection of Florida native plant communities. So you can come see some of the scrub that exists in the sand hill that's in the preserve. Uh, you can see the native wildflower meadows uh, that also exist and even uh, the carnivorous plants. There's a bog section as well. So if you want to see some carnivorous bug eating plants that exist both in the forest preserve and a model for uh, other carnivorous Florida native plant communities, that's a good place to look and always fun. And uh, you mentioned prescribed fire as, as a long-term plan for the preserve and, and how essential that is for the, the sand um, habitat. Um, I think that before you, the last time there was burn activity was 2017, I believe. And in the last year, you know, you've talked about the burn lines a little bit. Um, you've carved those out. You have a goal of having 12 burn units, I believe, uh, that rotate every one to three years. Can you, you know, think of that collaboration. Can you talk about the training it takes to join one of your burn units and the role that students can play in that and how that's different from past burn strategy in the preserve? Oh, absolutely. So in the past, it's really, um, it's, it's kind of who's been available to take it on and who has the certification. Uh, for the state of Florida, uh, there, are, there are two ways to go about that. Um, you can take uh, Firefighter 2, which is called S190, S130, and, or you can do a prescribed burn manager certification with the state. And the easiest way uh, for students to get involved in what we've started specifically uh, at USF is of course, it was a forensic investigation for me, right? When I came on, I talked to everyone, okay, what, what did prescribed fire used to look like? How often was it burned? But it's been about 20 years since it's had a regular one to three year rotation. So there's a lot of pre-work that needs to be done and have to think about, okay, 10 years, 20 years into the future, how do we mitigate some of those past issues of a professor leaving, uh, a researcher leaving and needing, you know, going off to work in other research. And then there's nobody who, who can 
provide prescribed burns anymore. And so in order to do that, create a really strong group of cross collaborative people who are certified in prescribed burning. And that way they can work together uh, because of course, when you think about burns, um, it, when they when we hear about them in the news, they're never a great sign. But when they're done in small parcels, like what we have at the USF Forest Preserve, it can be an amazing teaching tool and actually keep from those large scale burns that get out of control and become a wildfire. Um, and so what we're doing this year, actually, in this semester, we're sending eight staff and students. Um, my guinea pigs are the staff and students that operate out of um, the ecosystem system and the USF Botanical Gardens. And it is, um, it's it's a choose-in, so you, you can choose <laughs> to take it as well. Uh, but why would you want to, why would you want to miss, uh, miss that opportunity? Uh, and we're doing that through UF's Natural Areas Training Academy. Um, so we'll do a field day with Archbold Biological Station and learn the actual technical mechanics of how to use a drip torch, um, how to map out your fire lines, what to look for in, you know, it's kind of the perfect, you want to have perfect weather conditions or optimal weather conditions. So we'll learn all of that at Archbold Biological Station this this fall with a group of students. And then moving forward in the future, uh, I actually am amassing um, a, a group. So if you're, say you're not interested particularly in, in with the burning of it, but you mm -hmm. love, um, you know, there's a lot of outreach education that goes into that too in surrounding communities. Of course, we wanna be good neighbors. We want, we want our neighbors to know what we're doing, but we don't want them to be scared of what we're doing because it's not scary, it's helping the land. And the way you do that is you get in front, you go knock on doors, shake hands, talk about fears, uh, you know, answer questions. And so we have a group of staff and students who are more interested in that role than say putting on a Nomex fire suit and running around with a drip torch. Yeah, hey, and it's a classroom and it's something I didn't get to ask you about earlier this week. Can you tell me more about the Halloween Swamp Stomp, what that is, who can do it and, and how that's going to work? Well, it's it's quite exclusive, unfortunately, but we could have a, a future round depending on how it goes. I'm taking a very small group. Whenever I go out into the woods, um, it's not always the rainy season, but I still I still refer to it as a swamp stomp because it's my favorite to kind of go out and get your feet a little bit wet. And I'm going to take it. It's costume required. It's a small group of staff from the university who have not yet been to the preserve. Um, some of them have been working there for more than a decade and have never stepped foot into it. And I, I know a, a strong way to uh, connect is to, uh, to have an emotional connection to that space is to visit that space and immerse yourself in it. And so we're gonna uh, trek in and it will be a little bit of the wet season. Uh, I'm notorious for under preparing people. So I, I over dry. <laughs> my, my range of discomfort is um, not, not as intense as my former boss, Jason Lauritsen at the Florida Wildlife Corridor Foundation, who, you know, would readily stomp through Smilax and, you know, a, a bunch of thorns to get where he needed to go. And I've definitely been caught in a predicament with him there. But, you know, I'm certainly, I don't always think of the people who, when their shoes get dirty, they get a little upset. And so I've, I've accidentally taken people for walks in there and underprepared them and had somebody stomping through the swamp in jeans, you know, <laughs> knee, knee weight or knee deep. So um, I've, I've well prepared everybody, but it is costume required and I'm definitely going to be a ghostbuster. You know, before we take this call, it's interesting you say that, but uh, I've heard this a couple of times just in, in regards to the Florida Wildlife Corridor and other places in nature. If you want people to care about a place, the best thing you can do is show them that place, take them there. And a lot of times we're, 
we're um, uh, we're reluctant to just march into the woods, right? Um, uh, I, I hope it is in uh, the plans to sort of make access to that preserve uh, perhaps a little easier so that people can see and be mm-hmm. in, in in nature and realize why this is so important, why we need to protect it. Yeah, that's, that's cool that your position's here and you're, you're kind of planning that out. We have some calls here going on. We're going to go to DeAndre um, and Brandon. DeAndre, you're on the air here on WMNF. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Miss. Um, this is great. I'm glad to hear this is uh, taking place. Um, I noticed something with Sarasota. It got hit by that drought really hard. I caught the the, the broadcast like a, a ways into it, so I didn't hear if you addressed that at all. But um, has, has your scope included, you know, the Manatee, Bradenton, Sarasota area because of that? And ha- ha- have you seen Anything? Are there any observations that you've made so far with that area, aside from like east, southeast, and northeast Hillsboro, like the Zephyr Hills area? I'm assuming maybe you've uh, kind of include already kind of gone through those areas, but like with this with this past summer's drought, um, had you made any observations or or, or anything there? Uh, Nicole, anything to say to that? It occurs to me that USF has campuses in in these places. Right. Is that is that what you're talking about, DeAndre? Oh well, I, I just I I'm assuming that you know in training the uh, students to to uh, be uh, you know those uh, type uh, fire you know uh, you know those types of uh, uh, those types of uh, stewards. I guess I just use that term. Oh, right. Um, in regards to the prescribed burns. Yeah, and uh, have any observations been made as a result of the drought that had been taking place and kind of maybe still is less so, though, in Sarasota, Manatee-like? Have have you uh, gone through those, gone through those areas or made any observations? Yes, the drought affected the the Sand Hill and maybe wetland habitat in in Sarasota? Yes, yes, yes. Anything to say to that, Nicole or Jeannie? Well, I can just say the USF um, Forest Preserve is on the Tampa campus. So I'm unfortunately, I, I don't know of any conservation land that USF uh, manages in the Sarasota area. Gotcha. And uh, something we talked about this week was this overall super positive feeling about Nicole and, and her e-corp position um, being a thing. And you've obviously been able to leverage the Florida Forest Service uh, to get some in-kind help carving out these fire lines. Uh, but something we talked about was uh, that your position did not necessarily come with funding. And to piggyback off of something that Ben mentioned, just being an average dude, uh, maybe, Jeannie, if you could take this question. Um, first, Jeannie, you're in a position now that's familiar to a lot of people like kind of out of school in the workforce, but still concerned about uh, the well-being of natural places like the preserve. Um, and Nicole and, and the preserves have a lot of work to do, right? The clause has closed the golf course there. We don't know what's going to happen with that. We'd like that to become a conservation easement. It's being used by all kinds of wildlife, um, otters and, and things like that. So what can the average person, uh, folks listening, people interested in putting energy into preserving land like the preserve, what can they do to support ECOR and somebody like Nicole? Sure. I think the best thing that can happen and something that you touched on is that um, while USF created this ECOR director position, which was unprecedented um, and, a, and a wonderful thing, they didn't provide um, that director with any funding. 
Um, so everything that Nicole has been able to accomplish, which has been incredible, has been through donations, volunteer efforts, um, different people in the Forest Service coming in and offering their assistance and equipment and expertise to get those things done. Um, but also in speaking about this 20-year land management um, strategy, that will take sustained funding to continue to, to operate. And so what people can do now, um, and especially with, you know, sponsoring students potentially to, um, to take these burn classes and participate is to donate to ECOR. And they can donate to the USF Botanical Garden and earmark that for the Forest Preserve. Um, I think our next strategy as uh, Save the US Forest Preserve is really putting some pressure on the university to allocate funding. Um, but in the meantime, having public donations would be a tremendous benefit in helping just continue to propel conservation and land management and education um, out at that preserve. And hopefully then to being able to open it up to the public um, to greater degrees than it is right now. And that's the voice of Jeannie Munger, a biologist uh, and um, advocate with Friends of University and Natural Areas. We've also been speaking to Nicole Brand, director of USF's only year old environmental and conservation Outreach Research and Education uh, Post, or ECOR system, as we call it. Real quick, in 30 seconds, because we only have a minute left, favorite plant or animal in the preserve, uh, Jeannie? Oh, um, mine, if my favorite is actually tattooed on my body, and that <laughs> is uh, Calipogon tuberosus, which is um, a terrestrial bog orchid that you can sometimes find with those sundews if it is in bloom. And Nicole? I've got to say the gopher tortoise because that's what I'm focused on right now and saving that population. Right on. Keystone animal digs burrows that many, many other creatures like to use, especially during fire. And we yeah, will uh, post links uh, to how you can get in touch with uh, Jeannie and Nicole. You've been listening to WMNF Tampa here, the skinny on behalf of myself, my colleague Ben Montgomery and Mitch Perry, who's in Tallahassee. Uh, thank you for listening. Up next, Joel and Shilke is in Studio One with Art in your ear. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week. Thank you so much, Jeannie and Nicole. Thank you for having me.